I'm thrilled this afternoon to be joined on the warning by a great American and a great Texan, the founder of the Texas Tribune, the Texas Tribune Festival, Evan Smith. Welcome. Steve, thanks very much. Happy to be with you. So I, 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 I'm married to a Canadian, and I explained Texans to, uh, to a group of Canadians. I said that, well, as you know, all Americans are special, but Texans are the most special of all of us. Right. Just ask us. We're happy to tell you how <laughs> right. special we are. Right. Yeah. We have we have absolutely no end to uh, you know how exceptional and how different and how much better we are than everybody else. That's in true. A, in a serious in a in a serious note, though, Texas is a state that is iconic, like yeah. California, like New York. Uh, it is singular. It is exceptional, and it is a microcosm of the country because Texas is an idea. California is an idea. America is an idea. Now, now there are manifestations of that idea, that American idea found in all of our states, right? But there's not a New Jersey ideal, right? New Jersey's not an idea, right? Uh, Ohio isn't an idea. But Texas is, and and oh, there's, there's no question about that. There's no question about that. What what is that idea? Look, I think first and foremost, this idea, the idea that I've known for the 32 years I've been here, right, is that the answer to every question is subject verb liberty. Back before people were talking about liberty in the context of our politics, Steve, people here understood that not telling people what to do or how to do it, leaving people to determine their own fates, their lives, the way they run their businesses, the way they raise their families, that has been baked into the cake here. You know, this is a state that prides itself on being independent, being independent of other states. We have an electric grid that is ours. We're not connected to the national grid. We don't want to be told what to do by the federal government. We want to be independent, self-determination. And for the people who live here, the idea that you can come here, whether you were, you know, someone like Sam Houston who came here, not born here, but came here to make his life, or if you're somebody who was born here, go back many, many generations. The idea is we want you to have everything you need to live independently, to think freely, um, and, and to determine the course of of the way you you do things. Of course, the irony of our politics these days is that much as I've heard people talk about Governor DeSantis in Florida, it's liberty unless I disagree with you. Because that idea of liberty only extends up to the water's edge. And if you go beyond that and you start talking about wanting to organize your life or organize your business in a way that we don't agree with, hell yes, we're going to get in the middle of it and you. What would Ann Richards have said about that? Oh, I think Ann, I mean, for a long time, the late Molly Ivins would talk about, you know, uh, what Ann Richards would have said about Rick Perry as governor. Right. Or Rick uh, or, you know, or did say about Rick Perry's government or some of the people who've come along in the last 10 to 20 years of politics. Right. Um, Anne had a very different sense of what independence meant Anne had a very different sense of what politics in Texas meant. Remember, Steve, that Anne was elected governor of Texas more than 30 years ago. Right. When Anne lost to George W. Bush in 1994, 
That was the last cycle in which a Democrat was elected statewide in Texas. That's 29 years ago. You and I both know people who work for us or who we work with who are 26, 27, 28, who literally were not alive when a Democrat was elected statewide in Texas. They have to take our word for it. It's like Lincoln striding the earth, something they read about in the history books. This was for a long time a one-party state. It was just the other party. And surely the people, not just Ann Richards, but Lloyd Benson, Ralph Yarborough, the people who were part of that one-party rule a generation or more ago, would not believe what this state is and what its politics are, but this is this is the Texas we live in today. You know, when you talk about time in Texas, an astounding fact when you think about the size of the state is yep. that some of the most famous names in the history of the U.S. military, Eisenhower, Patton, the beginning of their careers, uh, Patton in particular, uh, was mapping and surveying the West Texas mountains. Uh, they were still unsurveyed uh, in the first decade of the 20th century. Vast state, um, tens of millions of people within it. And right. it's changed in recent years under Greg Abbott. There is a, st there is a spike um in a lot of hate crimes and a lot of animosity or is that a figment of the national media imagination what is the state of texas today did greg abbott cause those hate crimes i mean i think you know you'd have to ask yourself is there a direct line or a, an indirect line from leadership of the state to any number of things that we see today what i would say steve is this um this state is profoundly conservative, profoundly red at election time. I think you could argue that if everybody eligible to vote voted in Texas, it might be closer to a purple state or even closer to a 50-50 state or even a little bit of a blue state if you got everybody who was eligible to vote to vote. But you and I know, know that that's not how this works. Um, the, the people who live in the reddest parts of the state turn out most reliably at election time, and they determine the outcomes of elections. Texas is not just red, but it's blood red. And as I said, 29 years since a Democrat was elected statewide, congressional delegation is two-thirds Republican. Texas legislature is overwhelmingly Republican in both the House and the Senate. Um, do I think that necessarily Greg Abbott or Dan Patrick, our famous lieutenant governor, or Ken Paxton, our even more famous attorney general, are themselves responsible for anything going on here that some outside the state might perceive as bad? I mean, I think if you're in charge, you're responsible, right? Like, if, like I, I, there's no way around that. And, responsible for the climate, not the act. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to say that this is the state that they've led. This is the state that they've built. And if you like it, then you credit them. If you don't like it, then you blame them. Is that state is that state a tolerant place? Is the state of Texas a tolerant state? I think it'd be very hard to look at the way that, as an example, our transgender Texans have been treated at the state level and say that that is a treatment that is born of tolerance. Um, I think that you have people in the state who feel like this may not be a place for them. I mean, we're sitting here today on a, on a day when a woman who won a court case that allowed her at the local level, local court level, to get an abortion despite one of the most restrictive 
laws on the books of the 50 states as it relates to access to abortion. She had to make the decision to leave the state to get an abortion, even though a court found in her favor because the attorney general uh, uh, appealed that decision, threatened the doctor or threatened the medical provider who might provide such an abortion under court order if, in fact, that had occurred and the Texas Supreme Court stopped the court order while an appeal was in process, this woman's health was in danger and felt like she had to leave the state. If you talk to not all women, but some women in the state, they would say this is not a very tolerant state as it relates to women. I think you have Black and Hispanic Texans who see their educational outcomes or their access to health care or any number of other things. And they might tell you that government is not directed to provide for them what they feel that they deserve as Texans and as Americans, and they feel that there may not be as much tolerance for an equitable policy environment or policy outcomes uh, in, in the state. I mean, I think where you stand, Steve, always is where you sit. There are probably a lot of, in fact, I can say with certainty that there are a lot of very conservative Texans, some of the most conservative Americans who are also Texans who would tell you that this state is very tolerable and that everything going on here is, is great. We have this incredible business environment, this incredible job creation engine, low taxes, predictable regulation, all the blessings of living in this state. They would say everything is working just fine. That is not a universally shared view. When, when you think about Texas, I want to ask you about two events that are unrelated culturally before we talk about the state of news in Texas. Sure. But during a time of crisis, Ted Cruz took off to Cancun. And this is the state that produced James Earl Rutter, um, who, for those not familiar watching, he was the Ranger commander who led the assault at Point du Hoc in Normandy came home, desegregated Texas A&M, admitted women, turned it from a small regional university into one of the great world universities in time. The ethos of the state, from Audie Murphy, uh, Sam Houston, Colonel Travis, is that Texans don't cut and run. And then you come to the shooting in Uvalde, the murder of the children in the in the police force waiting outside, which which I consider to be the greatest act of cowardice collectively in my lifetime. For none. There is there is no other collective act of cowardice. And that's what it is that's even close that's occurred at an institutional level in my lifetime that than what occurred with law enforcement in Uvalde. There seems to me to be an arrogance in a cover-up about what happened on the part of law enforcement, a defiance against the indictment of cowardice, which is real earned, which is well and truly earned. And my question is, what has happened to that ethos? 
Was it always mythological? Is it something that has dissipated, that has changed, that has that has that has rolled back? Or I think about LBJ um, and his silver star. He was so motivated to cast himself as the hero to fit the myth the iconic Texas myth. What What's happened at a cultural level to explain those events? Are they happenstance, random, accidental, or connected to an unraveling of some sort? Or so let me, let me, yeah, yeah. So let me start at the granular level. Let me back up and talk about the Texas myth second, but let me take the Uvalde situation first. What you know about what did and did not happen at Uvalde, I'm saying very proudly, was in part born of the reporting that the Texas Tribune, not alone, but it in partnership with other news organizations, has done since, you know, the end of May of, of last year in that awful day, including most recently the Tribune and ProPublica and Frontline collaborating on a documentary that resulted in extraordinary reporting about what the police did not do, what law enforcement did not do on that day. You know, there's been an effort to um, to force through lawsuit, through court action, the Department of Public Safety in Texas to release records related to activity that day. Courts have found that they're obligated to provide that stuff, and yet there is still resistance to providing us with an accurate picture of exactly what happened on that day. Um, it's unforgivable. Um, and uh, if nothing happened on that day that was inappropriate or untoward, then just show us everything that happened and, and that will back up your point of view. By, by dragging your feet, by not providing stuff that we, as members of the media and as re residents of this state for whom these folks work, if there is an unwillingness on their part to provide the public with greater transparency into what happened on that day, then that simply confirms for me that there's something here that they don't want us to know. Um, it, it's an awful day that continues to reverberate, frankly, politically, because you not only have the issue of the response, but you have the issue of a policy around access to firearms that no one wants to even have an honest conversation about. There was an effort after this horrible day from last year to raise the age that someone can purchase an automatic weapon. There was not even a willingness to entertain a conversation around that in our legislature. So I have real questions about how that went down. I think I'm one of many people in the state who do. And it does not um, it does not square with the expectations that we have for the people in elective office. There is a lack of accountability that we're seeing in the way that people have responded to calls for more transparency. That lack of accountability is as much as anything the new normal in a state that has no competitive elections as a consequence of gerrymandering and one party rule, people don't have to worry about whether they're gonna get defeated at election time, so there are no consequences. People are able to do whatever they want or not do whatever they want without really fearing that voters or anybody else will, will be able to, um, to hold them to account. Look, on the cruise stuff, Steve, to be perfectly frank with you, I think that that was just a really bad decision on his part, which he has effectively acknowledged. He made a call in the moment to do something that he recognized quickly with the public and others calling him out for it that he shouldn't have done. He came back, 
Um, I don't know that there's more to take from that as it relates to what happened to the Texas Smith, other than it was an own goal on his part. He biffed it. He biffed it on a very grand scale. But I think he acknowledges that. I'm not sure that there's a lesson to take from the Cruz thing so much. But let me get to the Texas Smith. In a lot of ways, like so many myths, what we think we know about this state has been stereotyped and exaggerated over the years so much that it no longer looks like anything real. Texas is a very different state today than when I arrived here in 1991. And it is vastly different if you go back another 30 years from what it was at that time. Texas is significantly, as you say, growing in population. 30 million people in Texas today. If you go ahead to 2050, it will be 47 million. It is rapidly urbanizing. Texas now has five of the 13 largest cities by population in the country, more than any other state. We have the most big cities. The population of Texas that is rural right now is about 10%, 3 million people. It is the smallest percentage of a state that, again, according to myth and lore and legend, is rural and ranching and agriculture focused. It is an urban state, full stop. The smallest percentage of our state right now is rural at any time in the history of the state. And the state is rapidly diversifying. We passed 60% people of color this last year. For the first time ever, the white population of Texas is below 40%. By 2040, it'll be below one third. You would not know that from the way people talk about Texas. You would not know that from the way government talks about Texas. We do not legislate and we do not appropriate like a state that is this fast growing, dynamically diversifying and rapidly urbanizing. So there's a lot about the myth of Texas that is probably outmoded and outdated. To be honest with you, it was probably always a little bit outmoded, but especially today that Texas myth has really been transformed into something unrecognizable when you understand the reality on the ground in Texas. Let me ask you a question about the state of the media in Texas. Does it exist? Well, you know, Steve, you've got some extraordinarily iconic media brands that come from the big cities I referred to earlier, the Dallas Morning News, the Houston Chronicle, to name two. These are not just Texas newspapers. These are national newspapers of a sort. Um, yeah, what's happened in Texas is not any different than what's happened every place else. The big city papers, the big ones, their newsrooms have been hollowed out. Their reporting capacity is not what it used to be. I mean, you would not. I mean, at, at, let me back up. I So I would have said earlier in my career when it got rolling, right, that, you know, the national newspapers were the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, uh, USA Today, you know, uh, Chicago Tribune. I would I would put on that list Miami Herald, right? Right. right. You know, Dallas uh, Morning News. You know, Houston Chronicle. Impactful regional players with national right. stature, right? They could, but but those aren't national newspapers anymore, right? By any. No, no, they can't, and, and, and they can't be. They cannot. They cannot be because they do not have the capacity to do right. the ambitious reporting on a regular basis. They will occasionally do really ambitious and meaningful reporting, and I believe that Texas needs every one of those papers to be at their absolute best to do as much as they can. We at the Texas Tribune, other news organizations in Texas, we see ourselves as collaborators, not competitors. We root for one another. 
The state desperately needs people to tell them this is what's going on. This is how it affects your life to search for the truth and tell people what they find. We need everybody to do that. But these newsrooms have been hollowed out, these big city papers. And outside the big cities, there is largely no meaningful sources of news to speak of. And so you have these vast news deserts where people can't get basic information. We saw that during the pandemic. We saw that during the collapse of our electric grid, to name two examples, where having a reliable source of information, Steve, was literally the difference between life and death. When you do not have a source of news, all you have is the crap that is in your feed, literally and existentially. And what that is often is misinformation and conspiracy theories. That is how we get to a point today in Texas and in other places where truth is not truth, where reality is subjective, where facts are not facts. I will tell you that it is as bad as it has been in my lifetime in Texas right now in terms of mere access to basic information. Our state legislature has been in session all year long, one regular and four special sessions. The last of the four just ended a couple of days ago. And they made very significant decisions that are going to affect the lives of everybody in the state. I wish everybody knew about it. I wish everybody knew that there even was one regular and four special sessions or that there was an election coming up next year that's going to be so significant in terms of the policy decisions that affect them. Problem is a lot of people have checked out. And the reason they've checked out is they have no place to turn to get basic information. Let me um, get your reaction to this to this premise. So I love old news photographs. And there was one of the great exhibits of any museum I've ever been to was the Pulitzer exhibit at the museum in Washington where you had all the Pulitzer photographs, right, from the years, the runner-ups, really just told the story in this exquisite fashion of the 20th century. And if you look at old photos and old speeches and old newspapers and images of eras and documentary films, everyone is reading. Right. Everyone in the photographs, right, just as they're standing around, as they're sitting on a trolley, on a bus, just passively in those pictures, scores of them from the Old West to the rising cities, everybody's reading. My my grandfather, who was born in 1911, um dropped out of high school in or eighth grade, um, worked in a factory, worked as a bar back, but read constantly. Um, now, my kids, who've grown up with a lot of privilege, um, can't get them to read and have spent yeah. a lot of money right on, on an education, right, that has produced on the back end kids that can really operate that chat GPT, but aren't interested in reading. And so right. when, when you when you go back and you, you read the Federalist Papers, right, and you, you kind of examine it through the prism of, of, of a manual of how do you maintain a democracy, if, if nobody will read anything, it becomes possible, impossible to understand anything, to know anything. And I, and I guess, yep. and I guess 
how do you fix that in the in the society? How do you fix that? Yeah. Well, first of all, your kids grew up in your house. My kids right. grew up in my house. Neither of our kids is reading a newspaper. And they grew up in our house, right? They grew up where this stuff was talked about all the time, where elections were talked about, where issues and ideas were talked about. Um, it's a huge problem. And I think that partly the problem is on the distribution end and partly is on the consumption end. So let's talk about the distribution end first. News organizations have not gotten anything close to smart enough about how to go to people where they live, young people in particular. Where are the platforms that people are consuming information in that generation or in those generations, plural? How are we going to go to them? We can't wait for them to come to us. There's an enormous amount of work that has to be done to solve the problem of how we're going to get in front of those people. And I will tell you that the answer is not for the legacy news organizations to get somebody to come in and do their TikToks for them. That is not the answer. There are very easy and what seem to me to be simple-minded answers. The answers are much more complicated than that, and we don't have them yet. We have to watch what the best and most successful people doing this or doing, and we have to copy them, we have to innovate, we have to replicate and, and all that. On the distribution side, we haven't gotten to be very good. On, on the consumption side, I would say there's a, uh, a tendency from, from these uh, kids to hear people of our generation yelling at one another or yelling over one another, and they completely check out. They don't want to be part of that conversation. They don't believe that there's any value in paying attention to it or being a part of it. I really do worry that there's a whole generation of kids, kids my age, I'll tell you, my kids are 20, about to be 27 and 23, who have been told their entire lives that public service is worthless and people in office are terrible. They've heard people, not you and me, but people in our universe, shit talk government, say bad things about what people in power do. And they've decided that none of this is for them. Who is going to take the baton from people of our generation in office if we can't get people of the generation of our kids to pay attention, to consume media, to learn about issues, to understand the role that they can play. I really do have a lot of concern about that. And I think that it's it's a two-way problem. It's not just that the media is not doing a good enough job of getting in front of these kids, but it's also that the people on the consumption end have been told for years, don't pay attention to this stuff. It's bad. They're bad. And so they've heard us. They've listened. What? It's, like, I, I think it's a real problem. There's a conception of I think for us growing up of what the news was right yeah. so what that meant was in a world with 13 television channels right it was it was network news right and it was the news right it was and you yeah. watched ABC NBC or CBS and we watched ABC Right. So right. the news, right, really meant Bill Butel, Eyewitness News, New York City. Right. It meant Frank Reynolds, um, later Peter Jennings. Right. Uh, distinctly remember um, kind of the news as CNN came on, right, it was Bernard Shaw. Right. There was Chuck Scarborough in New York. Right. There was right. There was, of course, you know, Tom Brokaw later. But the but the era of the anchor, the the news and what was happening yeah. and when breaking news happened. Right. It was a big deal. 
right? Like something really yeah. bad, right? Something momentous had 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 occurred. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the news in the context of in this era, is the news what just happened this weekend that Alex Jones and Elon Musk and Vivek Ramaswamy and Andrew Tate, so a Laura Loomer, right? Yeah. Thuggish, accused sexual trafficker, a billionaire political and stock hustler, Ramaswamy, Alex Jones, uh, demented and sick and evil person, evil, evil person, and Elon Musk, fresh off the anti-Semitism. And so them gathered on a digital platform, right? together word of that conversation spreads here and there right it's certainly in all of my feeds that and there's mainstream media that covers it that this convocation of twistedness and the fact that Ramaswamy's taking a leak during the conversation and they're all laughing about it that this is now in today's day and age, this is this is the news. And if if that's the news, right, right, am I am I am I right about that? And then there's a there's a market question then is what can compete against that yeah. in the public that's in the public interest. I would argue that it's not the news. I would argue that it's news. But I would argue that the news covers news. I don't consider X, the social platform you're talking about, to be a news source. It's a source of referrals to news sources, and it may be a source of referrals to stuff that is not news, that maybe once upon a time you would have found news on there, and today you find a kind of circus atmosphere that's dangerous and, and concerning and all that. I mean, I'll stipulate that it's, it's something that people pay attention to. But I would not call it the news. I would say that the cable news environment has come to be more important to the news than the network news environment. You and I talk about the networks when we were growing up. You're exactly right. That was what we had available to us. The networks still exist. The networks still produce news. There's still a nightly newscast, right? But and, and even though the numbers, the audience numbers may be down historically, they still represent a significant audience share compared to what we now think of as the news, which is the cable channels. A lot of that news on cable is actually not news. You know, Sean Hannity is not news. I'm sorry, Rachel Maddow is not news, right? What CNN is doing right now is probably closer to news than what the evening cable shows are providing. I would not think of it as news. That's not to say that it doesn't have some value. Or that it doesn't have a kind of like a United States of confirmation bias, affirmation quality for some people. You turn on the cable channel of your preference to have the voices in your head affirmed or the ideas that are already in your head affirmed. It has some value, but I don't think of it as the news. But look, we have to accept the world we live in. One of the problems with the world today, Steve, is too many people have been allowed to live in an alternate reality that exists only in their head. The reality that we live in is that there are more sources of information, good, bad, and in between than there've ever been before. There are more places for people to go to get information. There's terrible media literacy in this country. There's a profound inability of most people 
to distinguish between Sean Hannity and the news. Now, sometimes Sean Hannity is news. President says on Sean Hannity's town hall the other day, I'm going to be a dictator on day one. That's news. But the platform on which it was made is not the news. We don't mistake that for the news. We simply don't have enough places to go to get the news today because people have run to the burnt ends of the brisket on either side, thinking that that's their best likelihood to get an audience. But as a democracy, we need more places to go that don't have a point of view, that are simply providing the news. And that's something that we profoundly lack today, I'm afraid. Would you put Rachel Maddow into an information category, if not news? Yes, I I would. And Chris Hayes, of course. Uh, I like them both personally very much. I think their shows have value. I would say it's information. But I would also say that stuff, but it has a point of view. It has a point of view. And that point of view is rendered with with a high level of integrity. Sure, absolutely. I, I'm not in any way dismissing or, right. or, um, or undermining the value of what they provide. It has, it has a high level of integrity, and it is false equivalency to compare Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity. Right. And so 1,000%. And so, and so on Fox, the hard news side of this, which I, which I think is an extraordinary development right in in this political moment in this cultural moment which frankly i didn't see coming i predicted the violence in september of 2020 predicted that trump would lose predicted he wouldn't concede predicted the violence that was going to come the one thing i did not predict is that someone like brett Baer would be on television on election night and come to the conclusion whoa we can't tell. Yeah. We can't tell. We were told. We were. We, we were told that there was a. Yeah. We were told that there was a bifurcation between the so-called news people on that station, and the non-news people, and it turns out that it was all same same. No, I completely agree with you. And the reality is that during the day, you have a lot of shows on, say MSNBC. We were talking about that a second ago. That to me feel much more like traditional news reporting than not the evening stuff. I think everybody would acknowledge that the evening environment on those cable channels those two in particular, is a little bit less the news. But it is, in the case of MSNBC, reliable information with integrity. On Fox, not so much. So I say this as a vestigal conservative, deeply skeptical of the power of government, right, to bring about sometimes the type of change, right, that needs to develop more so. But I'll tell you one thing that government fixed. And I say this to someone who's a million miler on three different airlines. Right. Yeah. Government made this go away. And it was the era of sitting on a plane where you knew the plane would never take off. You knew. Yeah. It, right. You And you knew that the flight crew knew it and you knew that the captain knew it. But the captain, for whatever reason, in an era would would fuck with you, would 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 as a consequence, it would be. 10 more minutes we're going to go, 10 more minutes, and you'd have hours of 10 more minutes, or you'd have the the opposite effect, right, where they just wouldn't say anything. It was just total silence, right? No one would give you the courtesy of an hour three 
what's happening. What's happening. Right. And, and this provokes people and enrages them to their highest level. So we're watching the yeah. thing and there's um this moment where Trump attacks the media and the and the crowd just goes crazy, pray, you know, like right. plotting the attack on the media. So it's chum for the sharks. I right. think that this is a big deal. Um that's not been covered enough, and I've been looking forward to asking you about it. Joe Scarborough goes on his show and he says something out loud that's completely true. He says, every single Democrat who comes on my show, all of them, 100%, says one thing out loud about the president and his ability to beat Trump, and then has a completely different conversation off camera. This is on a network where there's a lot of time being spent talked about misinformation and disinformation. If you have the leading journalists and the leading hosts and the leading politicians of one party having a conversation that's private and having one for public consumption that's thin and inauthentic, and people sense it. The cynicism that that produces is very real, but but the tendency, and I saw it with all of the people who came on as Republicans denouncing Trump, only to get in line until there were literally like seven people left, right? You know, that held the line on, on Trump consistently through What's the word you would call that? That 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 secret conversation, that green room conversation, and what do you do about that? Because that's not the journalism of Texas Tribune and ProPublica in frontline of stripping back in Uvalde. That's the journalism of a very cloistered geography of people living in a in a certain kind of radius of Washington, D.C. and New York, making some proximate range of salaries in the millions, having conversations with other people making million-dollar salaries on the periphery of government and politics with each other in secret and calling it news. What's, what's that? Well, look, was that not the criticism of Fox that came up through the Dominion lawsuit and the release of those text messages that they were going on the air and saying one thing and the evidence was that privately they believed something else and were saying that to one another? I mean, that's is that materially different than going on the air and saying X and then backstage or back in the green room saying Y? One is you have to make a decision as a matter of fact, right? And the other is about a, about a position of belief, right? right? One is a, you, you, a sin of commission, one's a sin of omission. At some level. But you have to you have to make a decision, Steve, as a journalist, whether you're comfortable putting people on the air, whoever the subject, saying one thing when you know from conversations you've had that they believe something completely opposite. You know, you're not an enabler. You're somebody who's supposed to be scrutinizing and preventing facts, presenting presenting facts, presenting the truth. And if you know something that is not the truth and is not a fact, 
Someone is expressing an opinion that is the exact opposite of what they've told you previously that they believe. If you're putting that on the air, you are part of the problem. I'm going to say that regardless of the subject, regardless of the channel. And I don't think that's journalism. I don't. Um, what do you think is more dysfunctional right now? The state of the parties, the state yeah. of politics writ large, or the state of the state of journalism? Or are they all one, at least as it's applied through Washington, one confederated mishmash of self-interest masquerading as the public interest i don't what like how do you, how do you see it and I, I guess the question i'm trying to ask at a business level there's so much corruption yeah. malfeasance and wrongdoing right now that if you were running a journalistic entity right afflicting the powerful would seem to be a joyful growth-oriented business in this moment because yeah. there's so much low-hanging fruit, yet there seems to be outside of ProPublica and and some of these, you know, other kind of institutions, Texas Tribune, certainly one of them, Rolling Stone occasionally, right? Uh, you know, so a real lack of appetite, right, to go to yeah. go find the there there. And there's a lot of there I there. Yeah, I think I think that the news on that is a little bit better than the pic picture that you just painted. I think there are more news organizations that are willing to roll up their sleeves and to do that hard work and to fade the heat and consequences. I think the New York Times is in that category. Maybe not every day, but I certainly think the New York Times is one of those news organizations that has shown themselves willing to write those hard stories. I think the Washington Post has. I think the Wall Street Journal has. Um, look, I think it is hard work and it's expensive work and it's time-consuming work. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the state of the media, that for a lot of uh, organizations that publish the news, the expense and the time commitment and the less than 100% certainty that this thing that you're spending your time and your money on, our time and money on, is going to pan out, that is, a, um, is an obstacle for a lot of these news organizations out in the world today to commit to doing that kind of investigation. Um, or to holding people accountable on a grand scale. I think that's one of the problems is that the news business is really kind of like down to the stems and the seeds in terms of its capability, capacity, inclination to do that work all the time, well, even though it needs to be done. Look, I think you asked if this is all a mishmash. The, you said the parties, politics, and the media. Is it all one thing or is it separate things? I would say it's a Venn diagram. I think there are problems with each that overlap but each have problems that are unique to themselves, that are specific. Um, I do think that the parties, from my perspective here in the middle of the country, that the parties are, are in a bad place. And I do think that politics generally is, is not functioning in a way that is benefiting the average person in this country right now. We're, not, we're, we're, we're avoiding difficult problems and difficult conversations. We're not getting a lot done. I'd be interested to see what this session of Congress has accomplished laid out end to end versus comparable sessions of Congress in previous years. This feels to me like something of a do nothing Congress. Um, and it's in part because you have a divide politically between the House and the Senate. There's a, not only is there no um, w willingness to get along, there's an active um, 
uh, effort to avoid compromising. Compromise used to not be a dirty word in this country, and that's now where we are. And so I think I think that the whole thing is broken. And I think that journalism was unfortunately in a moment when we need it more than ever in a tough spot in terms of its ability to tell us all about it and to shine a light on what's not being done and what needs to be done. So it's an unfortunate overlap, um, kind of um, the confluence of these things, the collapse of these institutions is happening concurrently. And it's, it's, it's bad for all of us. Do you view it as a collapse of these institutions? Do you view it as decay of these institutions? Do you view it as these institutions are too far gone that they're metastasizing to a place that makes them too far gone then like how like how do you assess the moment with regard to that statement well i mean you can ask yourself whether politics and the parties are too far gone to be fixed i mean i i i don't honestly work in in politics or in 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 the party system enough my knowledge of them is more educated probably than most people as a close observer but i'm not in the midst of all of it my sense is that it's a complete mess it's as much of a mess as it's been in my lifetime and i'm not sure that they can pull themselves back up from it ultimately it's going to be on the public to to spur that kind of change or reset um the public's capacity to take less than they deserve from government seems endless you know i mean the public is going to have to say we're not prepared for this anymore and we're we 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 demand that there be something different I, i do know about journalism i don't think journalism is beyond repair i don't as an institution And I think that what you're seeing around the country are these green shoots. I think what you're seeing is evidence that people in communities who have no place to turn are saying, we've got to figure something out. We've got to create new organizations. We've got to fund new organizations. We have to build new models. One of the most hopeful things about the last year that I've spent on the road as a consultant after stepping down at the end of last year as the CEO of the Tribune is I'm seeing from coast to coast and border to border a lot of very hopeful and optimistic signs, start up news organizations that are trying to come in alongside the legacy guys and trying to provide real, reliable, credible, consistent news. Like, I do think journalism is not only savable or fixable, but it's on the way there. We're not there yet. It took a generation for the news business to get to the place that it is right now, and it may take a generation for it to come back. I'm just not really sure about politics and the parties. I mean, look, we're in a situation right now, Steve, where we have two unpopular candidates for president who appear to be on a path to be the nominees of their parties. Whether that is fair to them or not, the public has said we're not happy with the choices. You have a bunch of fringe candidates, third, fourth, fifth parties potentially, who are not serious and who are not going to be impactful except possibly to cause uh, a defeat of one side. We don't know which side yet, right? Um, This country is is looking for something else. The the polls say that. Now, we're not yet in a general election where this becomes not just a referendum, but a choice. We'll see, in fact, whether the, the relative unpopularity of these candidates persists into a general election where we have clarity on what's what and who is on the ballot. 
But it's going to be up to the voters to say this time and for all time, whether they're prepared to continue down the path that we're on. What I can tell you is I believe that the public right now is profoundly dissatisfied with the politics of the moment and how long that continues before there's change remains to be seen. Do you think that Matthew McConaughey could get elected governor of Texas as an independent? You know, we actually had a moment to consider that in the last cycle where there was some talk about him running. And there was some question about which party he would run in. Nobody knew. Nobody knows what his politics are from a party standpoint. And so, yeah, a number of people asked the question, well, if he went a third way, could he get elected? I tend to think that celebrity candidates are an interesting conversation like the one that we're having, but that in the end, I don't think people are prepared to put government in the hands of someone who does not have knowledge about the inner workings of of government, uh, of policymaking. I mean, you can always solve for that by putting people around such a person who know that stuff better than the individual does. And I guess we did live through a time when Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected governor of California. So maybe, in fact, what I just said is complete bullshit. He was a... Right, you know... He was a serious governor. Um, Not He was not... Yeah, but but at the beginning, at the beginning, before he was governor, probably people had the same conversation about him that they had about McConaughey here, right? Is this guy someone who could actually get elected and could he lead? Schwarzenegger proved that it was possible. Right. Do, do you? But you think he could be formidable, Matthew? I mean, I, I honestly don't know whether he could be formidable. It's very easy to walk up to the edge of deciding you want to get in this. People like you for your movies. They like you for your persona. They like the fact that you're there on the sidelines of the Texas football game. Um, you know, all of that notwithstanding, it's one thing for him to be a candidate in theory. But when he gets in and what he believes is scrutinized and who he is is scrutinized, people may take a different point of view or have a different point of view about him. I just don't think we know. I think it's fan fiction to speculate about. Could Will Hurd run an independent candidacy in Texas? Well, well, first of all, if you're talking about for governor, if you're talking about for governor again or just for any any governor, governor. Yeah. I'm not sure that Will Hurd wants to be governor of Texas. You'd have to ask him that. I've not had a conversation with him about whether he intends to seek any office ever again or that office particularly. I do know that Will Hurd is where, if I went back 10 or 15 or 20 years and I looked at who was a Republican and who was a conservative, Will Hurd's positions on things and his affect tend to align much more with the Republican Party and what conservatism was at that point than what we know it to be today. Um, who votes in a Republican primary, as you very well know, Steve, is often the determining factor in whether somebody gets elected in the fall in a one-party state. Where there is not competition in the fall, the primary is the general. Can someone with Will Hurd's politics get through a primary in a state like Texas today? Will Hurd had one of the lower percentages of uh, alignment with President Trump when Will Hurd served in Congress and Trump was in the White House, his Trump score was pretty low. Um, He voted on issues like guns and the border uh, in ways that aligned with what his constituents in his district, he believed, 
needed at the time, but may not have been aligned with the Republican Party in the main in Texas, right? Could Will Hurd get elected to that seat that he held in Congress today? Would he be able to get through a primary for any office in Texas today? It's tough. I mean, look at what happened with George P. Bush running against Ken Paxton for attorney general. I have questions about whether George W. Bush would get through a Republican primary today. The party today is not the party it was 20 years ago. It's just not. So I don't know. Do I think Will Hurd is fit to be in an office? I do. Of course, right? Do I think that Will Hurd might have a problem getting elected? I do also. Now, I, I believe, I always say this, of all of the presidential candidates, nominees and winners, mano a mano against Trump, right? You can go all the way back, right, to FDR, right? Who would be the strongest person on the debate stage against Trump? And I will never be convinced otherwise than it's George W. Bush, right? That George W. Bush, right, underestimated as a politician, but George W. Bush's ability to give him the looks that someone should have given him a long time ago, um, that Barbara Bush look and the wit, um, right, or, you know, something that would be effective at confronting Trump. But um, let me ask, Steve, I have to tell you, somebody, somebody who you know very well, who also would have been an interesting person to debate Donald Trump is John McCain. Right. I would have loved to see that. That would have been really interesting. I think I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know, I mean, John wasn't a great debater, um, you know, and God, he got so pissed off in these debates. Right. Like, I mean, yeah. I just, like, I don't, I, I honestly don't know like how, like he would have held it together. Right. With Trump on there. I, I just, it's, uh, it's also preposterous. I, but let me let me ask you this question. I, this is a very real thing. This is this is real. I'm going to ask you something that's not science fiction. This is Donald sure. Trump said that he's going to do this, and and one thing is true. There is no person who has ever promised the concentration camp, the mass deportations, and the arrest of political prisoners, who, upon achieving political power, did not fulfill the promise ever. Nobody. Right. So so one thing Trump has said, I'm deploying the military hour one under the Insurrection Act of 1791. Now, Congress can defund that and and bring it to a stop, not without crippling the military, you know, with a lot of consequences around the around the world if they're in the majority. Donald Trump takes power on January 20th, 2025. And if the election were tomorrow, Donald Trump would be elected president if Joe Biden were the nominee. How how do you think about, as a journalist, a moment of tanks rolling into Chicago at the order of a president, not like Eisenhower did with the 101st Airborne to enforce federal law and a desegregation order, but but the military to con- to control with thinly veiled yeah. political purposes. What talk to me about that coming story because that's what comes next, right? That's the next evolution of this. And if you talked about the progression of all of this over eight years time, 
and and you got out five years ago to know this is we're going to have an insurrection at the Capitol. People would have looked at you crazily. Trump, you, you, would, you wouldn't have believed it. Right. He's going to he's going to dis disassemble the government in six months with the military on the streets to make sure our cities, which he said, are being invaded, are secure. So, so what is right. your frame to cover that conceptually as yeah. a journal, journalist an event that could be under a year away and is at the core of the Repub right. Republican nominee's campaign promise? Well, the coverage of it begins now. It doesn't wait until January 20th and 2025. You've got to think about it, write about it, talk about it now. Liz Cheney said the other day, we have to take him both seriously and literally. He said what he intends to do. Maya Angelou, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them, right? This guy's telling us every single day what he intends to do, who he is. We need to take him seriously. We need to believe him. My colleagues at The Atlantic produced what I thought was an extraordinary issue of their magazine um, over the last couple of weeks that essentially laid out end to end um, what they perceived to be the threat. You know, Stuart Stevens, who you know very well, said several months ago, the greatest danger is not realizing what the greatest danger is. Well, we need to be focused on the possibility or the probability that what you just described in some fashion may be coming. We can't be caught surprised, caught off guard by it. We can't be surprised by it. And I think that as a journalist, you have an obligation to take people at their word and to sort through how abnormal it is and to sort through what the consequences of it would be if it were to happen. You know, we are not just journalists, Steve. We're humans. We're Americans. We're citizens. We're people. We're no different than the people we write for. The consequences for us of such a day coming are not just the consequences for journalists. They're the consequences for citizens. They're consequences for the residents of a democracy. And it's not, it's not playing around time. And I think that we in the media business have an obligation, an obligation, a responsibility to start covering that day today and to anticipate, to process what would happen if that in fact happened on that day. So, you know, you're exactly right. What you said about January 6th is exactly right. If you go back five years ago, nobody would have believed it. Nobody would have believed it. And I think to some degree, we're still shrugging our shoulders at it. Right. We're blurring out the faces of the people on that day, literally and existentially, as the speaker said the other day. Right. That was a day that none of us ever expected and none of us ever could have predicted would ever come. I think that we're at a point now where our capacity to be astonished by events has been replenished. Like, we know that astonishing things are going to happen. We see them happening in real time every single day. So we shouldn't be surprised about the possibility that what the likely nominee for office of one party says will happen should he be elected. We should not be surprised by that because he told us. And so as journalists, we have an obligation to report it, to consider the consequences of it, and to start now. I want to ask you a question that I, I think is a really relevant one. Um, Steve, Evan's got, we, Evan's got a heart out in a little bit, so this is going to be our last I'll question. Okay? Last question. I'll make this the last question. Okay. Sure. When I look at a Dan Patrick, a Greg Abbott, Attorney General Paxton, astoundingly corrupt figure. 
packs. Would they lock up political opponents in your estimation? Would they lock up journalists? Would he prosecute you if he could? Would the attorney general prosecute me and mine if he could? If he could. Yeah. Would you, would you, there's no evidence. There, there's, there, there's no evidence. There's no. Yeah. There, there's no evidence, Steve, that, that that's the length to which he would go. I will say that the relationship between the attorney general and other people in elective office and the media right now is also at a low point in terms of access, in terms of a willingness to be scrutinized, to hold one's conduct and oneself up to the to the light. I think that this is a complicated moment for sure. Have they? I don't know that we go all the way to a jail term, but uh, but I will say have they, it's complicated. Have they have they exceeded or underwhelmed on the question of their hostility to democratic norms? Meaning, are they as hostile as portrayed on MSNBC to the norms? Democracies are sustained by by norms, not rules. Or, um, is it less than? I would say this. Um, it's an interesting moment, and a difficult moment. Um. If you grew up at a time when people who disagreed disagreed agreeably and people who had people they disagreed with but didn't consider them to be their enemies, if you grew up in that time, this is an unrecognizable time right now. I will say that. I think you're talking about, in the case of those three individuals, different people. I think you have different points of view about each of the three and you have different points of view depending upon the day you're talking about. Um, we live in an interesting time as it relates to norms, as you know, both at the national level and in a lot of states around this country. What you and I understood to be the norm growing up is no longer the norm now. I'm going to come back to here at the end what I said earlier. It is not up to you or up to me to resolve this, to, to, to address or to fix the sorry situation that we're in. It's up to it's up to the people around us. It's up to the voters of a state like Texas or the voters of this country. It's up to regular citizens to do it. All we can do is to tell them to pay attention, to give to arm them with the means to be more thoughtful and productive citizens, to, to arm them with the means to be the best civic versions of themselves. They are the ones who need to ultimately decide whether abnormal is too abnormal. Right? I mean I'm 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 pretty clear about where my place in this is, what my role is, and I stay in my lane. You are, um, but I, but I will, but I will tell you, this is not normal. Perfectly, perfectly said. And let me close with this: um, the world that Benjamin Franklin was born into in 1706, there were 260,000 English settlers on a thin sliver of the East Coast. And by the time he died, which was a year after the passage of the Bill of Rights, there were about 3 million Americans. Um, and there were about 3 million of us uh, when he walked out of the Constitutional Convention and a woman shouted to him, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? And he said, a Republican, madam, if you can 
keep it. And that is the choice in question today. And it is the same as it has ever been in the United States of America from the beginning uh, through every day until this day and the election ahead. And uh, it is great to be with you and everybody Thank you, Steve. who is not reading the Texas Tribune absolutely should. It's one of the finest publications in the country. Thank you.